Live from Chicago, this is Bruce Dumont with our Beyond the Beltway analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of Roman innuendo, all up with a fire panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by Jack Charlier, Jason Allen Spires, and Jennifer Volen-Katz. Our program tonight, coming to tomorrow, based at the Museum of Broadcast Communications in Chicago, where our toll-free lines are open at 1-800-723-8029. That's 1-800-723-8029. If you want to email me a comment, it's Bruce Dumont at museum.tv. You want to offer me a tweet, it's at Dumo, at D-U-M-O. And, of course, you can join us on the World Wide Web at beyondthebeltway.com and also live on our Facebook page, which is Beyond the Beltway with Bruce Dumont Facebook. We are live there each and every Sunday night. And if you miss us, you can go to the website and you can watch programs from years ago. You never miss this show. If you, if, if you want to find it, we're always there. We have a unique program this evening. First of all, I want to offer to all of those of our listeners in Wilmington, North Carolina, and Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, we send our prayers to you for the devastation that your communities have suffered for the last several days, and it looks like it will be difficult for the next many months in that part of the country, and we wish you the very best against you as you try to uh, uh, st- stay afloat, literally and figuratively, and also put your lives back together again, and to all the, uh, the workers that are out there, uh, National Guard, Federal Troops, uh, state and local officials that are helping you uh, survive, we, we congratulate and we offer them a Godspeed as well. So again, our prayers are with you tonight. Uh, also this evening, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're not going to talk about the usual, you know, top five stories in the news because, uh, uh, you know, those issues will be with us next week. But we're going to return to a story that or an issue that I talk to frequently on this program, and that is the criminal justice reform and the problems of prison and pre-prison uh, reentry programs in the United States. We're the most uh, incarcerated nation in the world, and uh, we're going to hear one story tonight. We've got some experts on the field with us, but one of the experts... Uh, is someone who has served the last 15 years of his life in state prison. And his name is Jason uh, Allen Spires. And, Mr. Spires, thanks very much for, for being with us. Sorry, I'd like to – we and I have spoken, so I know the uniqueness of your story, so I'm going to lead the audience through it by, by interrogating you. But a short version of how you got in trouble was that you, were, you received a package – from your mother that had 38 pounds of cannabis. Yes. Why did she send that to you? Uh, I had been selling drugs in California during high school for about a year or two, very low level. I came out to Illinois because my father lived out here. I found out how much drugs were. My mother was a meth addict. My dad was a crackhead. Uh, It wasn't very hard to convince them, hey, send me this box of pot. So they sent it to you. How did the authorities know that you had received it? Uh, My mother walked in probably beyond terrified because they suspected that she looked nervous. And they said the package wasn't packaged correctly. So they opened it up to kindly repackage it. Upon that time, uh, inspected the box and called the authorities. Okay. And how old were you when this started? Nineteen. Okay. Nineteen, you admitted you were a drug dealer. Oh, yes. Okay. So... You're sentenced. What was your sentence? Uh, There's a lot of facets to the story, but at the end of the day, when the dust settled, I had a 30-year prison sentence and over $200,000 in fines. And when did you start your 
prison in central Illinois? Uh, I got to prison in September. Uh, I went. I got to Illinois Department of Corrections on August fifteenth, two thousand and three, and I paroled in late September of last year, which was twenty seventeen. Uh, and to go back to one of your other things, my only convictions were nonviolent cannabis offenses. Mm-hmm. So, a lot of people listening to the program this evening might say, "Okay." Why is Bruce talking to this guy tonight? There's a lot of people who got involved in drugs, uh, maybe even drug dealers. Why should we feel sympathetic for you? Is it, is it the 15 years that you think people should be sympathetic about, or don't you think they should be sympathetic at all? I don't want no one to feel sympathetic for me. I want people to look at what we're doing and ask ourselves, is society getting the best benefit for their dollars out of their actions? If you want me to have better actions to get better results, then I would ask that the people that are incarcerating me design systems so that they have better actions that get better results. I'm not asking you to condone what I did. I'm asking, do you think deeming me more heinous than a second-degree murder, which is what the state of Illinois did for nonviolent cannabis This was a Class X offense. I was considered... The worst of the worst. Underneath first-degree murder. Right. I was deemed a heinous offender... For nonviolent cannabis offenses. Think about that. I could kick in your door with a baseball bat and be rendered less heinous. Do you do you feel that during those fifteen years was there were there any treatment programs that were, in your opinion, helpful to you? Very much so. Uh, in the state of Illinois, we have a thing called the Adult Transition Center. It's a work release program. And as of right now, it's for lower-risk offenders. When they get down to about two years or less on their sentence, they're able to go back into the community, strongly supervised. They must return back to prison every night. And they go out and they get jobs and they start earning money and they start establishing relationships with community employers. Uh, Some of them even decide to go to college while they're there. But they have to come back every night. And over the course of time, they slowly get benefits. Like, here's a two-hour pass to go see a movie. Mm -hmm. And what we're doing is you're asking, oh, well, why are we letting these prisoners just go see movies? What you're doing is you're finally giving that prisoner probably the first chance in his life to experience life. Where you're not so, I mean, where you're sober, because most people who go to prison didn't get there because they made great choices in great environments. So what we're doing is we're simulating an environment of what your life could be like if you decide to live your life the right way. And after two years, and they develop job training skills, and they develop a relationship with their employer, and they get promoted at their job, and they have a savings, and they're not getting arrested all the time, and they're not arguing with their wife because they were drunk last Friday. How, how many, they parole with a good ethic and a better start. How many years were you serving in prison before that program was made available to you? Uh, I did 13 and a half years in prison before I got there. And 13 and a half years prior to that, you were, what, playing cards and going to the yard? And reading textbooks, but reading, yes. But you, you, you told me in the phone conversation, you spent a lot of time reading and educating yourself, planning for a future. Now, what, what sparked the future that you decided to pursue when you got out? I would go to lunch every day, and for any of the viewers that's been in the military, imagine you're going to the chow hall because it's kind of a similar experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we all congregated around this certain tree because it provided shade. And we were just standing there talking, and one day I had a pass to the library or something, so I missed the chow line. That day, around that time, that tree fell. 
I can't tell you that I would have been standing there right there when that tree fell. But it ain't like it went and fell down. Like, it came down quick. Had I been there, I would not be sitting in this chair right now. And I asked myself, what if I would have been standing there? Like, what's the sum total of my existence? And it was like that I was quote-unquote good at moving a plant from this state to that state, and I got caught doing it, so I obviously wasn't that good at it. Like, is that what I want my legacy of existence to be? And so then I asked myself, like, what am I going to do to change that? And I started looking around my cell, and I was watching C-SPAN one day, and I seen Harvard, Stanford, and Columbia, and they asked... And I want to hear that story. We've got to pause. I want to hear that story, and I'm going to also give you a little hint. Next week, this young man starts at Stanford University in Palo Alto, California. Back with the rest of the story in a moment. Are you planning for the day when you can retire to your dream home in Palm Springs, California? A day surrounded by spectacular scenery, golf courses, a rich cultural life, and great dining? If you are, you'll need a guide, someone who knows where to look, an experienced broker, someone who knows the desert communities of Southern California and all they have to offer. That person is Brian Beard, who's been making dreams come true for over 13 years, selling over $100 million in real estate, including celebrity and architecturally significant homes to the rich and famous, and more importantly, to people just like you. Brian's company, Caldwell Banker, has agents worldwide, but Brian Beard is your man in Palm Springs. Call Brian now at 760-799-7096. That's 760-799-7096. Or visit him online at briansellsthedesert.com. Schumann back in Chicago. Oh, we continue our conversation with uh, Jason Allen Spears, and we'll hear from our other guests in just a moment. But, Jason, when, when, uh, when we left before the break, you were mentioning that you were watching C-SPAN. And, and, and what did you see on C-SPAN? That, because you mentioned Stanford yeah, University, and I want to find out how that got Stanford, in your brain. Stanford, Harvard, some other big colleges like that. I was in my cell. I was watching C-SPAN. And one, someone asked the admissions officers, what do you look at when you look into an application? Like, what do I got to get my kid to do? And the admission officer said, there's no right answer. If you ask me, like, you know, who you, how are you going to fall in love with this guy? Tell me exactly what I got to be. You, you just meet the guy and you know. And they said, we read the applications and we know. But she said, I can tell you this. We don't look at what you've done. We look at what you've done with what you've been given. If you're from New York and your dad's a lawyer and your mom's a neurosurgeon and you went to fancy prep schools and you got 1600 on the SAT, that's awesome. But I'm more impressed with the girl in Alabama whose parents homeschooled her. Her dad's a pastor and her mom never even graduated high school. And she th- you know, they think turn on the lights, a miracle, and she went and got a 1400 on the SAT. We look at what have you done with the resources you've been given. And I sat around and I looked at myself. I said, what do I got? And I had a pencil, I had a notebook of paper, and I had a library card. And I said, you know what? I'm going to make the best resources of what I got. And I started writing all kinds of newspapers. I've been published in different papers in this state over 100 times. I wrote two books, not published yet, but they're wrote through nine drafts. (laughs) Uh, And... uh, I started grabbing textbooks out of the library, and I just read every single page, every single problem. And I often tell people that selling pot 
was probably not the last crime I did because when I got done with those notes, I probably committed copyright infringement because my notes stood higher than the textbook. I mean, like, and I spent four years just dismantling textbooks six to eight hours a day. I'm going to say at least six days a week. So when you got out, and we'll, we'll, we'll bring it up to where you are right now, when you got out, you, you applied to an Illinois uh, school and you also a secondary application when, to Stanford? No, when I was in the work release center, I was allowed to go to the community college. Where you were very successful, we should say. Yeah. You were hired to basically kind of clean up, and then a couple of months later you were— I was, hi- I was were, hired uh, on as a dishwasher. Within, dishwasher. within six weeks, I became the manager and had the key to the front door within— Two weeks after that, I was running the checkbook, and two weeks after that, well, I think two months after that, I was the operations manager of the entire corporation with three locations. So the only thing I can tell people is I just do me, and I started writing down notes of, like, what time customers came in, what time they made their orders. I started figuring out our peak hours of operation. When do we do our most sales? And I was looking at all the inefficiencies that we had inside this business because it was so wildly successful of a business they didn't have to worry about being inefficient or not. But I was like, I can do, I could help this guy. I just couldn't tell him right away. I had to build trust and relationship. So, But uh, quickly, and then I'm going to let our other guests jump in here, because I think uh, the next chapter of your life is going to start next week, because you applied to Stanford. They put you on hold for a while. Stanford but then, put me on a waiting list. A waiting list. But then... You were very ingenious because you figured out there was a conference that was going on in Chicago that might, that the person who was the admissions director might be at that conference. You didn't know that she was going to be there. You thought she was going to be there. You went down to the hotel, and what happened? I took a leap of faith and said, you know, I can't say she'll be there, but I can say she might be. And I can say if I don't do it, I definitely won't meet her. So I went to the hotel and uh, it was a very cold day that day. So when I parked here, parking, I'm not used to Chicago City parking. Uh, so I had to park in a parking garage, and it was so cold, I grabbed on this rusty sweater. I started walking through downtown Chicago, and I was doing petitioning for a candidate here in the state. So I had jeans where an ink pen had broke on me from petitioning earlier. And uh, so I'm like, okay, well, when I get into this conference, I'll take this sweater off, or straighten up, and I'll look better. So I get into the hotel at like 4 o'clock, the conference is at 7, and there was a myriad of events that happened, but the bottom line is I ended up walking by a table and happened to see her just sitting at a table by herself three hours before the event, and then my excitement got the best of me, and I was like, are you so-and-so? I, I don't want to yell out her name, on, uh, and she was like, uh, uh, and I was like, I'm sorry, I'm Jason Spires, I'd emailed her before, and what was... She's like, oh, I only got a minute. And what was supposed to be like maybe a 30-second interaction turned into like a 25-minute conversation. And I know this. At the end, she said, Jason, this has been great, but I really got to get going. Are you ready? I said, that's fine. But can I close it this way? And she's like, okay. And you ever had those times in your life where you know it's a turning point? Like mm-hmm. you know this is a big moment. Right. You know what you say can change the course of your life. Mm-hmm. That was it. And I reflected on it as when she said, okay, because I didn't think she'd say, okay. <laughs> so I looked off and I was like, what do I say? I said, I'm not arrogant enough to believe that I'm any better than any of the other people that got waitlisted. And I'm definitely not arrogant enough to believe that I'm any better, any smarter, anybody got in. 
And I'm not any better, any smarter than the top 500 people you denied and probably didn't want to. But I can tell you I want it more. I can tell you for the last 10 years, I've been waiting to apply to Stanford. And so it's only fitting that I'm now officially waiting to go to Stanford. And if you let me in, if Stanford lets me in, I will be there. And I give you my word you will not regret it. Wow. She said, okay, thank you. And I think she gave me a hug. I was so wrapped up in the emotion, I don't remember. And I walked out, and I called one of my uh, – I had a friend who was an attorney that I was locked up with. His name is Mark McCombs. He was a corporate attorney here in Chicago. ended up in Taterville with me. I called him and was just talking on the phone about, man, I think I just – I just talked to the admissions, and I was just such in a raw. But next thing I know, two weeks later, I'm driving to my car, and I get the email that I'm in. Very good. And it, well, again, congratulations on the success thus far. Obviously, uh, you, this is just one chapter of your life, the first uh, umpteen years. But Jennifer Volenkatz, uh, you were with us. You're the executive director of the John Howard Association, which is one of the nation's oldest uh, prison reform organizations. Uh, my question to you is the, the, we had a unique ending to uh, the story that uh, Jason told us, but what is it about that story that stands out with you, either in a positive or maybe a negative way? Um, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on the show. And one of the things about the John Howard Association is we are the only independent citizen correctional oversight organization in the state of Illinois, which means we do work on prison reform and criminal justice reform. We are advocates, but we are also systems monitors. So we're inside the prisons a lot, and a lot of our information comes from speaking firsthand to incarcerated people and the people that work inside prisons and, and run the prisons. Um, I think that Jason's story is unique in so many ways, and certainly the outcome with you headed to Stanford is uh, one in a million, I would have to guess, Um, and it's a fantastic story. What I would love to find out more about is when you talk about that that moment where a tree fell and it could have been you but it wasn't and you were going to change your ways – it sounds like you started going to the library and you started pulling out textbooks and educating yourself. Was there anything available for you at Taylorville? Was there any programming or education? How did you make all this happen? I, I was at Logan Correctional Center when that happened. Okay. Taylorville has much better resources, and that gets into a whole other issue because Taylorville is a gang-free center, so their population is like 70% white. And if you don't believe there's racist uh, policies inside of the prison system, go look at what a mostly white prison looks like and then a non-mostly white prison and the resources they're provided and given. There is, I'm not saying racist people, there is policies that have shadows of racism that's affecting people being able to grab the ladder to climb up. The good example of that was when I was in Logan and said, I'm going to go and get a library. I went over to get textbooks. Uh uh-uh. not happening, no way. And then they wouldn't give me the resources to get a calculator so I could do sine and cosine functions, even if I paid for it. But then I go to Taylorville, brand new looking like textbooks, library in perfect condition. They have a budget. They don't get closed down regularly. I talked to the warden, Cecil Pauly. This man changed my life. He got me a scientific calculator. He made this all possible. And I'm not saying it was a white-black thing. I'm saying... The resources that you see in a 
prison that's predominantly white are far different from the resources you see in another prison. Jack Charlier also joins us over 25 years in the criminal justice field. Uh, your, your assessment of the story you've heard thus far and uh, what follow-up might you have? Sure, sounds good. And Bruce, thank you again for having me on the show. I love Beyond the Bellway. Uh, long-time listener, not long-time attender, but long-time listener. Uh, and Jennifer, uh, nice to meet you and the work that John Howard Association continues to do. So very cool. And Jason, uh, great story that you have. Thank um, you. Jason, let me ask you a question, and, I'm gonna, uh, and I don't know the answer, right, as they say. Okay. Have we met before? No. So, yes. Um, the times that you were arrested, right, so you have drug use in your past, that's clear. The times you were you're arrested, um, what was going on uh, during those arrests when you're going in at some point in and out of jail, maybe prior prison sentence? What was happening in regards to your ability to access treatment uh, or services on those prior ones? And I don't know. I haven't yeah, asked you I, this up front. I had no prior incarceration. Okay. Um, I had no prior incarceration. Okay. Um, I was raised with a mother that was a meth addict and a father that was a user of all drugs. Yeah. I, I remember the family lived on 700 and something dollars with a family of five, and my mom and dad were divorced. My dad was out here. She was out there. Uh, when I started selling drugs, what was on my mind was food. Like, I'm not, I'm not making an excuse. I don't condone my actions. Uh, but I had no prior... I had no prior substance issues. I was literally a businessman with the wrong commodity. And I, I stick to it to this day. Cops were selling me pot in Red Bluff, California. I was buying my cannabis off of police officials. Uh, like, I didn't look at what I was doing as wrong. That, we like, got to pause. We'll follow up on that when we come back. Bruce Dumont. Everyone loves vacationing in Florida. So why not experience it as it was meant to be? Where turquoise gulf waters meet tranquil island beaches. Feel the powder-soft sand between your toes. Revel in a glorious island sunset. Shop the boutiques of a seaside village. Ride horseback along tranquil waters. This is Bradenton Anna Maria Island Longboat Key. Real, authentic Florida, where you can discover an intimate downtown and sit cappuccino at a sidewalk cafe. Catch fresh fish for dinner. Even tour a working winery. Just minutes from all the rest Florida has to offer. Bradenton, Anna Maria Island, Longboat Key. Plan your visit online at BradentonGulfIslands.com. That's BradentonGulfIslands.com. Bruce, you went back in Chicago. We're talking about the criminal justice system and prison reentry. You've heard the story of uh, Jason Allen Spires, but uh, Jack Charlie is here, and uh, you've got another follow-up question, Jack. Yeah, I, I think more just a comment, Bruce. So uh, at the break, obviously, we're uh, talking with you, Jason, and the challenge I have with your case is not about you. Completely successful, outstanding story. It is not uh, indicative of what is going on in the criminal justice right. system. So to raise Jason up is outstanding and excellent. Congratulations. I'm always challenged when I'm on programs, though, and stuff like this. Right comes up because it is it is not the norm so jason in your background this is more of a movie than a norm exactly and so he has uh, no background in addiction although his family has and i'm putting it out because you said it has addiction issues grew up in poverty poverty is not uh, a driver of crime right things attendant to poverty are um so the story is not instructive from the standpoint of listeners hearing because what you could come to as conclusion is what 
you went to jail, now you're better, let's send more people to jail. Right. And that's not the lesson to be learned here. My guess is, Jason, based on research of how we understand how people desist from crime and crime reduction, my expertise is I'm a national crime reduction expert, he probably at some point would have gotten out on his own and would be doing well anyway and might have been a really, really good drug dealer from the same skills that have now gotten him to Stanford. That's not to minimize anything. It's just and not a great case from a can, justice reform right. standpoint. Can I respond to that? Sure, absolutely. Uh, he's right. I'm not typical of the common person who goes to prison, but I love that because I'll be talking to people. I was talking to Jennifer before the program, and she kind of made a face at me because she didn't know where I was going with it. People talk to me and say, Jason, I think that's great, everything you're doing, but you're not typical of the system. You're not ty- we can't just expect everybody to get out and go to Stanford. And I'm like, you know what? You're right. And I hope that they will remember that same concept when the guy gets out of prison and goes and does an atrocious crime. Yeah. Don't look at the outlier and then label what he did for everybody that's inside of the system. Pat Quinn, when he did the MGT push program, which was a good time program, messed up over a thousand people from getting good time because one guy got out and got arrested for a murder. You, you know what I would say about uh, Jason's case? So I'm going to turn kind of the research and the science, right? Sure. Which listeners might not be familiar Absolutely. with is. Um, so Jason uh, did a crime. There's no doubt about that. And under state statute, he got uh, charged sentenced or pled whatever happened and he got uh, from that then certain amount of time in prison but my guess is that if we had the ability in illinois and this is one thing task works on all the time what we call a system of diversion that we would have caught him earlier on in terms of who he was by his background and the crime aside and would have got him into a better place it's not to excuse what he did it's to say that maybe the time that he spent in prison didn't really offer up anything, but just cost us lots of money. There's better ways to get him to Stanford if that was going to be his path I, uh, than that. People, there are people who definitely need to be in prison. There's no doubt about it. But if Jason's going to be the instructive example, it's not, right? We need a, a system by which we can catch people at the right point and get them into the programs they need and not use prison for people who don't need to be in prison. Right. Also, uh, in, in, in ex-offenders that I've spoken with over the, the last e- several years, one of the things that I've heard from more than one is, okay, I was sentenced to five years, one was sentenced to ten years. I learned my lesson about six months in. Yeah. I mean, the, the deprivation of freedom is so devastating that the average person cannot comprehend it. That, that once you have been de- de- deprived of freedom for, uh, let, let's say, three years, you got the message. You don't need 15 years. Now, I want to get your reaction to that as well. You're probably going to agree with that because I've heard it from other offenders. But in other words, you learn the lesson, and, and you learn the lesson that you don't want to go back again. And the fact that you have to spend or your colleagues might have spent another 15 years there, in many cases, it hardens them. And that's why we lead to the recidivist rates, the return rates to prison, which are atrocious. My response to that is twofold. Uh, You get the certain type of person who – my response to that is twofold. You get the certain type of person that they do get in there, sort of like me, and two years in have this realization – and you don't need to have them there another 12 years. But the problem is, is you're hearing that story from people who get out and they're successful. You don't hear the story from the guy who's been in and out five, six, seven times right. because he doesn't get invited yeah. to shows like this. But my point for that is... Or that's shelter over his head, and he doesn't really want to be out. Yeah. 
No, and what I was going to say is the problem is is we send a lot of people to prison, and we are a department of warehousing in many respects. A good example is when I got there, if I wanted to go to school, I had too much time. The, co- the education coordinator said, come back and talk to me in 10 years when you're down to five. So they basically said, well, when you get short, we'll start focusing on maybe doing something for you, but we just need you to sit around right now. Jennifer. It's, it's- it's true, and it's, it's one of the really frustrating things that happens in the Illinois Department of Corrections. Because there isn't enough programming for everybody, they wait until people are closer to release. So if you're looking at 15, 20 years, you're not going to be eligible for programming until you're closer to your release date. So you've got all this time that you're sitting there, and there's very little you can do that's productive. But I want to go back to something you just said when you talked about the length of time not really being the the part that makes a difference in how somebody behaves when they leave incarceration. And that's exactly true, and the research supports that. I mean, what's important about the consequence is that it be swift and certain, not that it be long and tedious. And what we find is that the length of the sentence is not correlated to success, and it never acts as a deterrent. So the more we create paradigms where the larger the amount of drugs or use of weapons, we're going to put you away for longer, 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 it doesn't make anybody safer, and it doesn't change outcomes. So I think what we need to look at is what are we doing with the time people spend inside? If we agree that there are some people that are necessarily going to end up in our prisons, what are we doing to make them different? What are we doing to help them behave differently when they leave so they don't end up back there? And I think Jason's story is is amazing, but I agree with everything that's been said here that he's an outlier, that this, you know, having the motivation, having the access, ending up in a facility that allowed him to access materials to teach himself, all of that is really unique, and it's wonderful, but we have to think about programs that are going to help the average person who's incarcerated. Jack? Yeah, so uh, to tag on to Jennifer's point, um, for any viewers out there, um, ask them if someone uh, gets caught with uh, three grams of cannabis on them, how much time they should get. Ask a prosecutor. Ask a judge. What about a gun? What if someone breaks into your home? There is no rhyme or reason to the number of years that are in statutes across the country. I work nationally. Um, There's no rhyme or reason to them. And so for your listeners to understand that and that takes you know a kind of a mental jump to say wait a minute there's no relationship between 5 10 and 15 and 13 years to the research and how we do crime desistance crime reduction there's none there is however a growing field of knowledge uh, about 20 years old called evidence-based sentencing evidence-based decision making that looks at the individual and says and i'm going to use lay language what's wrong with you and let's figure out to through programming and through the right level of supervision to get you to where you need to be so you stop committing crime. It's not related to sentencing. It is related to things like, for example, are you using drugs? Uh, what does that look like? What does it look like on who you're hanging out, out with, right, the people, mm-hmm. places, and things? Um, that paradigm shift is occurring in the United States. It is occurring, but it is a slow kind of slog to it, including in Illinois. There is movement towards a judge sentencing, a parole officer, a probation saying, what is up with Bruce? What are your challenges? And if I know that, I can slot you into the right places, just like in medical care, just like in school. I know what you need, and therefore I can get you to the right place. So you stop doing crime. 
always the purpose of the criminal justice system. During, uh, during pre-sentencing, at least at the federal level, yeah. And uh, it's happening in states uh, as an alternative to incarceration in some sectors of the country. They are relying on, on greater use of ankle bracelets. Now, as a layman, ankle bracelets seems like a very good idea. In your view as professionals, do you think it is a good idea? For what type of crimes would it work? Is it, is it a more costly process than mm-hmm. putting someone in prison? I can't believe that it is. Less but how expensive. effective is it, Jennifer? And are there, are there major jurisdictions that are using uh, ankle bracelets, either before or after incarceration? Well, you see it used sort of at every phase. There are people that use it um, when people are out on pre- awaiting trial. Right. So it's, it's a, you can be released with an ankle bracelet so they can monitor you. There are people that wear them as part of a diversion program for a short period of time. There are people that wear them on release for different reasons. So you can see it happen at different points. But I I think use of that is a good alternative to incarcerating people. It, It it's less expensive, and it allows people opportunity. What we want is for people to get the treatment they need, to get the education they need, to get the job skills they need, to get mental health treatment if they need it. And all of that is done better and less expensively in communities. And putting people on ankle bracelets allows them to participate in their communities in whatever it is they need to become a productive member of society. I'm gonna, we're not involved uh, with that, Jason. But you, no, you I, have a, I you had have an opinion I, on it? I had to wear an ankle bracelet when, when you got out. See, right? here's the deal. Uh, in work release, you had to wear an ankle bracelet. No, not in a work release center. This is the funny part. I was in a work release center, which means I was walking in free society, going to work, making money, became an operations manager. I was the supervisor of other people that were in a work release center. And then when I go to parole, because I'm a heinous offender because I sold cannabis, I was mandated to have to wear an ankle bracelet. Which was funny because when I paroled, I then had less freedom. And I think that a lot of times that while I bl- – I'm in favor of ankle bracelets when the person is like fighting their case and they're out on bond. And I actually don't think they should have to pay the cost of the ankle bracelet, innocent until proven guilty. But I'm not in favor of it for a means of incarceration because when we provide an ankle bracelet, we're not providing the services that solve the problem to stop the next incarceration. I'd rather use that money towards a work lease center, towards a job training program, towards something like that in a more controlled environment where we can actually make sure this person is learning lessons as opposed to sitting at home with his parents that probably caused the crime in the first place. we got to pause. 1-800-723-8029. You've been hearing the conversation. What are your thoughts on criminal justice and prison reform and reentry, prison reentry programs? You for it or against it? Are you headed to Los Angeles looking for the ideal place for you and your family to relax and enjoy yourselves? A place that combines a four-diamond hotel experience with a convenient location? It's the Hilton Los Angeles Universal City. Just steps away from Universal Studios Hollywood, CityWalk, and NBC Studios. Just a short ride to the Hollywood Walk of Fame, TCL Chinese Theater, Warner Brothers, and other popular attractions. Enjoy spacious rooms offering breathtaking views and a world-class Las Vegas-style seafood and prime rib buffet every weekend and holidays. Share family fun and enjoy the oasis of the palm tree-lined pool and whirlpool. Relax in your own private poolside cabana with a cocktail or snack at your fingertips. Book your reservation today at HiltonUniversal.com or call 1-800-774-1500. The Hilton Los Angeles Universal City. 
at HiltonUniversal.com. They let you be the star in Hollywood. Back in Chicago, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, we have callers on the line. Let's bring them into our conversation. Let's go to Joe in Cassville, Missouri, listening to us on KURM. Go ahead. Yes, uh, you did an interview with the Colonel years back here. but Yes, uh, a long time ago. <laughs> uh, I want to congratulate Jason on his uh, achievements of getting out and bettering himself. But I'm um, I've got two questions for him. When he said he was got the 38 pounds of marijuana, he was just looking to feed himself. I kind of have to question him on that one about uh, 38 pounds of marijuana is a significant amount, and I think he had other intentions than just feeding himself. But uh, why wouldn't he go to? A, why did he choose such an elaborate college? to get entrance into instead of starting out maybe the junior college and working his way up. Go ahead. You, you have a very good question, sir. Let, let me start with what you're right. When I had 38 pounds of marijuana, I had a lot more of an intention than just feeding myself. <laughs> uh, what I meant is when feeding I... Feeding yourself for a long time. Yeah, well, what I meant is when I first started selling cannabis, it arose from, hey, I'm feeding myself. And then it took off from there. So I'm sorry if I gave the impression that I was just feeding myself. I was living a fast life with a lot of money at, a night, at the years of 19 years old. I totally own that, so you're 100% correct. As to your question concerning college, I did start out at Illinois Central College, which is a community college. While I was working more than full-time, I held down upwards of 17 credits, and I was majoring in uh, Associates of Engineering Science degree. I held a 4.0 GPA. I'm the first ever incarcerated student to be admitted into Phi Theta Kappa. I had to argue with them on their rules and get them to change their bylaws because I told them that's not productive to not admit people who's been incarcerated. And then I applied to the University of Illinois because I wanted to go to our flagship campus. The University of Illinois begrudgingly accepted me and said that I would have to be on academic and disciplinary probation due to being a felon. And Stanford said, come here, we want you, full ride. Come to the state that accepts you for the man you are and doesn't hold the shadow of your past over you. You're not a 19-year-old kid anymore, and you shouldn't be held back from it. But the term full ride also got your attention. (laughs) Yes, definitely. (laughs) Uh, But there's nothing wrong with community colleges, and there's nothing wrong with state schools. Uh, Honestly, I was kind of begrudging to that. Illinois didn't just accept me regular admission. I'm not saying a full ride, but don't put me on academic probation for something that's not academically related. Yeah, that's another instructive point. So uh, kind of from the big picture sense, the idea that a university for some reason would put someone on academic probation, let's assume what Jason is saying is correct. I don't know Mm -hmm. in terms of their because you have a felony conviction, what is the relationship between that? Right. What is the relationship between having a felony conviction, having the ability to get into any university or college or whatever, and being put on probation? What, what is the connection between the two? Unless you got arrested and convicted for stealing textbooks or something, like, there's no connection. It is. Joe, uh, you had a follow-up question? Well, I just wanted to thank him for uh, clarifying the uh, comments that he made, and I... Uh, Greatly appreciate your show here in Missouri, southwest Missouri. Very good. Nice to hear from Missouri tonight. And also let's go to George listening to us in El Paso on KTSM. Go ahead, George. Uh, Jason, I wanted to call you because um, 
what you did is extraordinary. You broke through the graph of Illinois politics that placed you in prison for um, a minor inconvenience to uh, the authorities of the state. And um, you came out with flying colors, and um, you gained the opportunity to go out west. And uh, when you get there, I hope that you undertake a serious study of um, consequences to result from bad politics, and perhaps you can do something to change those bad politics in turn. Okay, listen, thanks for your... Let me ask you one quick question. By the way, we should mention in the next hour, we're going to continue this conversation, and we're going to be joined by Bernard Carrick, the former police superintendent or commissioner of New York City. He was the man in charge uh, at 9-11, but we're not talking about that because uh, he also ran Rikers Island, but also he was convicted of income tax evasion, spent three years uh, in federal prison, and he's become a major advocate of criminal justice and prison reform as well. We're going to hear from him in the next hour, picking up on this conversation. But my question to you before we leave, we've got about a a couple of minutes left, uh, uh, Jason. If If there's one message that you would like listeners of the broadcast to remember tonight, what is it? What is it that you want them to do? about you and your story? I want listeners to realize that their kid could go to prison. Cannabis is a felony in some states. And I want them to ask themselves, have they ever smoked pot? Have they ever possessed pot that was a felony? Could they have gotten arrested at the wrong time? And I, it hurts me when I think about the fact that if I had a kid... I would be more afraid of him getting caught with a drug than using that drug. And I don't mean just cannabis. I'd be death. I'd rather hear my son did cocaine and got caught with cocaine. And so we need to ask ourselves, is prison really the way we want it to be? Or should we go, as I suggest, that prison's for people that we're afraid of and not people we're mad at? You don't put people in prison because they did something you don't like. You put people in prison because they did something that terrifies you. Well, th- that's a, uh, not taking it away. That's like a standard line that's used all over the place, you know, so I respect that. Um, I think there's another instructive element here, though, in Jason's story, uh, and that is that. 30 seconds. Yeah, that in Jason went into prison, spent a substantial amount of time there, and did not succumb to the environment that your listeners might not be aware of is going on in prison. He came out with what he had probably going in and is doing very well now. So, And not many prisoners yeah, are watching C-SPAN. I fully support what you want. We've got to pause when we come back. Other side of news, or if you're listening to us on uh, television next week, we will be joined by Bernard Carrick. Don't go away. off the beaten track far enough, you'll find an America teeming with the unusual, the odd, the downright strange. I'm Will Klinger. 
and I'm your guide on a package tour we like to call Wild Travels. Join us on our weekly road trip to see America's most offbeat and unusual attractions. Wild Travels, available on your local PBS station. Or it darn well should be. Live from Chicago, it's Saturday Night Live. The experience. For the first time ever, get an inside look at the making of SNL. Critics nationwide are raving over 500 artifacts direct from the show. Be a part of Wayne's work, weekend update, and so much more. Experience all it takes to put the show together. Now at the Museum of Broadcast Communications at 360 North State Street in Chicago. For tickets, visit museum.tv. Everyone loves vacationing in Florida, so why not experience it as it was meant to be? Where turquoise gulf waters meet tranquil island beaches. Feel the powder-soft sand between your toes. Revel in a glorious island sunset. Shop the boutiques of a seaside village. Ride horseback along tranquil waters. This is Bradenton Anna Maria Island Longboat Key. Real, authentic Florida where you can discover an intimate downtown and sip cappuccino at a sidewalk cafe. Catch fresh fish for dinner. Even tour a working winery. Just minutes from all the rest Florida has to offer. Bradenton, Anna Maria Island, Longboat Key. Plan your visit online at BradentonGulfIslands.com. That's BradentonGulfIslands.com. Are you headed to Los Angeles looking for the ideal place for you and your family to relax and enjoy yourselves? A place that combines a four-diamond hotel experience with a convenient location? It's the Hilton Los Angeles Universal City. Just steps away from Universal Studios Hollywood, CityWalk, and NBC Studios. Just a short ride to the Hollywood Walk of Fame, TCL Chinese Theater, Warner Brothers, and other popular attractions. Enjoy spacious rooms offering breathtaking views and a world-class Las Vegas-style seafood and prime rib buffet every weekend and holidays. Share family fun and enjoy the oasis of the palm tree-lined pool and whirlpool. Relax in your own private poolside cabana with a cocktail or snack at your fingertips. Book your reservation today at HiltonUniversal.com or call 1-800-774-1500. The Hilton Los Angeles Universal City. At HiltonUniversal.com, they let you be the star in Hollywood. Here's Dumont back. Thanks for joining us on Beyond the Beltway. Uh, around the table this evening, we have Jack Chartier. He is the Executive Director of Treatment Alternatives for Safe Communities. Uh, Jennifer Volland-Katz also joins us. She is the Executive Director of the John Howard Association, one of the oldest prison reform uh, uh, groups in the United States. And Jason Allen Spires joins us. He served 15 years in prison for a pot conviction in Illinois. He's a prison advocate, and he is starting uh, uh, to at uh, Stanford University next week, believe it or not. And joining us from New York is Bernard Carrick. He is the former police commissioner of New York City, uh, who served his city and this country so well in the wake of the 9-11 tragedy. And uh, Commissioner, we thank you very much for being with us this evening. Uh, uh, it's, it's great to have you with us because our focus tonight is looking at criminal justice reform. And in addition uh, to your uh, newest book, which is called The Grave Above the Grave, which we'll talk about a little bit later on, uh, you've also written a book uh, from jailer uh, to jailed. 
uh, which deals with uh, your period of incarceration uh, for an income tax evasion charge. So you have perhaps the most unique experience of anyone in the country, having been knee-deep in running the police department and fighting crime, to being a first person uh, who can share with us uh, what you experienced when you were in federal prison. So thanks very much for being with us tonight. Thank you, sir. Please explain to us, because uh, one of the pet topics of this program has been the way in which there's been a bipartisan uh, effort in Congress to try to come up with significant criminal justice reform. It's somewhat stalled now, but what stands in the face of this are many politicians who are afraid that they will be labeled soft on crime. What message can you give to them? Stop, uh, stop playing politics with people's lives. Um, that, that's, I, I guess, if I had to sum it up in a sentence, that's what I would say. Um, you know, it's stalled now. It's going to be stalled constantly because, you know, uh, for political reasons, not for realistic reasons. Privately, the men and women in Congress that I've met with, which is most of them involved in this pr- criminal justice campaign, um, they will tell me privately it's the right thing to do. It's something that has to be done. It's something that should be done. It's it, all this stuff. And then when they get on the floor of Congress, you know, they have differences, differences of opinion with their, with their uh, colleagues. And for one reason or another, they will not support uh, the legislation. Um, look, I, you know, I'm no different of a law and order guy today, uh, you know, I've been the same for 20, 25 years, 30 years maybe. But the bottom line is we're putting way too many people in prison for things that they didn't need prison for. We're taking people that get involved in regulatory violations or civil violations or administrative violations, and we lock them up and turn them into um, you know, convicted felons, uh, commercial fishermen who caught too many fish. Um, somebody sells a whale's tooth on eBay. Um, somebody enhances their income in a mortgage application, somebody that hires a nanny, like I did, uh, that pays them off the books, we turn those people into convicted felons when in reality they should have been dealt with differently. And then on the drug side, you know, in the, especially in the federal system, we're taking young first-time nonviolent offenders and instead of getting them treatment, instead of, instead of looking at alternatives to incarceration, what do we do? We put them in the federal system for 8, 10, 15 years, and we monsterize them. Because that's what prison does. It's a training ground for thuggery and criminality. So you take a young kid that had no problems with the law, that had, a, that had a, a, uh, an addiction issue, and you put, stick him in prison for 10 years, and he comes out a complete thug. Um, I, I just think we're going down the wrong path. Everybody in Washington, D.C. knows it, but they're scared to death that they're going to look soft on crime, so they do absolutely nothing. Do we have a unique situation now uh, at the White House where the president is being advised by Jared Kushner, his son-in-law, whose father went to federal prison, 
Do we have a unique case here where maybe the right person is whispering in the ear of the President of the United States, and this might be where he can provide some leadership and, and show a bipartisan effort? Well, listen, I, I actually sit in, in a number of those meetings uh, at the White House with Jared Kushner. You're not getting a better proponent to push for criminal justice and prison reform than Jared Kushner. And the president has already said, get the legislation passed, get it on my desk, and I'll sign it. Um, how much more do you need? But right now, you know, the First Step Act, for example... You know, the, the, House, uh, the House passed it, uh, overwhelming uh, by, uh, bipartisan support, mm-hmm. um, and yet there's still members in, in, the, in Congress that are like, you know, I don't know, it's not enough, uh, we need more, we don't like this part, but we like this part. Listen, guys, stop bickering, stop playing politics, get, take what you can get now and work on more later. Don't Do hold think- this thing up. Mr. Carrick, do you, th- do you think the answer is to, to separate? Now, again, we, we've been talking this evening about prison reentry programs. What can we do uh, to assist someone who's getting out of prison, uh, including uh, education programs while they're in prison to make them to, to, to less likely uh, go back into prison? And yet you have another large portion of the population that feels that the original sentences were too strong. So you have the you have the sentencing people versus the reentry people. Does the legislation almost have to be split in half? Is that I, I know that was one of the problems of opposition to the House bill, but is that something that maybe we have to look at that you know this is a two step process? That that's exactly what I'm trying to say. It's it's it has to be because these guys just they can't get over the hump on, you know, it's, it's not enough for them, so to speak. You know what? Take it piece by piece. Take it a piece at a time. Get what you can get when you can get it. And right now, they could get that First Step Act. If they get it to the desk of the president, he's going to sign it. And I will tell you, I was involved in making recommendations to Jared Kushner in the White House on things that the president could do through executive order and everything in the first step back were things that I recommend, I strongly recommended. And it contra- for you to oppose that, a member of Congress to oppose it, it contradicts our very criminal justice system. So do it now, work on the other stuff later, but do something. Don't, don't do nothing because you don't get your way. They're like a bunch of babies. Mm-hmm. When you look at at, at, at your situation, uh, Mr. Carrick, how quickly into your three-year sentence did had you been punished enough, in your view? Before I mean, I there, there, by the way, there will some, there will be some people listening to the program say, "Well, you weren't punished enough. You were only in for three years." But in those, <laughs> Listen, how much how much people, freedom do you I've have had... to lose before you understand that? Hey, I can't do certain things anymore. That's the question. I do have to pause for a commercial break, and I want to hear your answer when we come back. And I know yeah. our guests around the table in Chicago have questions for you as well. Bernard Carrick joins us, former police commissioner of New York City. Are you planning for the day when you can retire to your dream home in Palm Springs, California? 
A day surrounded by spectacular scenery, golf courses, a rich cultural life, and great dining? If you are, you'll need a guide, someone who knows where to look, an experienced broker, someone who knows the desert communities of Southern California and all they have to offer. That person is Brian Beard, who's been making dreams come true for over 13 years, selling over $100 million in real estate, including celebrity and architecturally significant homes to the rich and famous, and more importantly, to people just like you. Brian's company, Caldwell Banker, has agents worldwide, but Brian Beard is your man in Palm Springs. Call Brian now at 760 760- 799-7096. That's 760-799-7096. Or visit him online at BrianSellsTheDesert.com. Welcome back to Chicago. We're talking with Bernard Carrick, former uh, New York City police commissioner and author of a new book called The Grave Above the Grave, which is a novel. He's also written a number of other books, uh, uh, including from, uh, from Jailer to Jailed. And uh, Bernard, before the break, I asked you the question: uh, How quickly in your in your incarceration did you realize that uh, uh, you had been uh, you got the message? Did you need three years to get the message? I didn't need prison. I didn't need prison at all. Yeah. And here's why. And, and this is what people lose sight of, especially for the hard nosed conservatives that demand and, and they believe that everybody needs prison. Everybody has to go to prison to be punished. In my case, my case was an ethics ethics case. It was a state ethics case in which the Bronx Grand Jury, Bronx Grand Jury, found no criminal conduct. It was a violation, an ethics violation, um, no quid pro quo, um, and then it was a tax issue where I didn't I, pay, I didn't pay payroll tax on my children's nanny. I hired a domestic servant and paid her cash. Okay, that should have been a civil and an ethics charge. That's it. The feds come in, and they want to turn it criminal. In doing that, it took three years off my... Now, I'm not talking about prison. Three years, close to $3.5 million in legal fees that were that were charged, billed to me, in addition to the loss of between probably 15 and $40 million in proposed and anticipated business for my company. Okay, was that not punishment enough? The personal, professional, and, and, and just public annihilation? No, you have to go to prison. Mr. This K- kid that they locked up on, uh, you know, from the White House, Papadopoulos, yeah. he's got to go to prison 14 days. Really? You've destroyed him. You destroyed his life, his profession, personally, financially. Oh yeah, now the fourteen days is really going to help you. No. Can you can you offer your assessment as to why you think they did what they did to you? As you say, the way you've described it, it seems like a relatively minor offense. It's a tax evasion, but it seems like a relatively minor offense. A lot of people would listening say, "Well, three years maybe is too much." But you were, the form, you were the former police commissioner of the largest city in America and, and a hero police officer. How, how did that not count to anyone in the criminal justice system above you? I mean, you must have really ticked somebody off. Did you not, Bernie? No, Is that part no, of the I problem didn't. here that we don't know about? No, I, 
I, I don't think that's the problem. I think it was, listen, if you follow anything that I talk about publicly, the one thing I talk about is selective and political prosecutions. A lot of what's going on in Washington today. But listen, I, my, my criminal case in state court was completely concluded. It was over until Rudy Giuliani announced that he was going to run for president. And as soon as he started talking about a PAC and running for president, then the federal government got involved. And I went through another eight day. I just had a state 18-month grand jury investigation. Oh, no, let's do it again. Let's do it again, this time federally. Listen, there is no, there is no greater threat to our democracy than a government that weaponizes its criminal justice system to target its own citizens politically and selectively. There is none in an attempt to deprive them of freedom illegally or wrongfully. Do you believe that is what's happening with Paul Manafort, who announced last week that he's going to be assisting Robert Mueller? What is your assessment? Absolutely. Listen, Robert Manafort would have never been charged. The IRS looked at all of this stuff. The IRS looked at this before. Robert Manafort, Michael Cohen, every one of these guys would have never been charged if they didn't have anything to do with the president. And I know there's people out there that despise the president, and they think, well, they should all, you know, like me, I've had people tell me I should have got the death penalty. Okay, I, I get it. You know, you, you, you hate the guy, whatever, the, whatever your thing is, the bottom line is, I think the American people have to step, take a step back. The government should not be allowed to do this to anyone, not not only to yeah. Donald Trump's, yeah. you know, workers and supporters. They shouldn't be able to do it to anyone. No one. OK, I want to Jack Charlier is here. Uh, he is uh, with the uh, uh, treatment alternatives for safe communities, been involved in criminal justice for over 30 years. He's got a question for you. You know, to apply this to the larger field of, of criminal justice reform, uh, Bernard, you mentioned. Yeah, uh, you mentioned um, the uh, use of uh, government of criminal justice against citizens. The reality is, though, that uh, it can be well stated by possibly many African-Americans in the United States, that the police departments uh, uh, have been used in that capacity. And so you as a former police chief haven't gone to prison to realize that. I guess the question I would ask you uh, is when you were police chief, did you not hear complaints from African-Americans in New York City who said some of your police officers are doing some things to us that are not right, and what did you do about it? Um, this is not an indictment yeah, well, of the police. It is not saying that everybody is, uh, but there's no way to work in the field of criminal justice and not hear what you say and say, well, yeah, but you're an outlier, you got money, you got resources, and you ran a police department, and this is the issue we're going through right now, where for decades upon decades upon decades, thousands upon thousands of our African-American brothers and sisters have said that there is a challenge with the police at times. No, it's, it, listen, it depends on where they're at, and there's going to be constant challenges. You're going to have, in, in air, let, me, let me take it back to New York City, pre-Giuliani, post-Giuliani. Pre-Giuliani, there were 2,400 homicides in New York City. That's four times more than what they have in Chicago right now, which is completely out of control. So you have a mayor that comes in and basically says, look, you have poverty, you have socioeconomic issues, 
you have you know racial issues you have all this stuff going on um nobody's going to visit work live or go to school in an area where they cannot feel safe it's got to get cleaned up so you go in and where do you go you go to the communities where the crime is and if that community happens to be you know black well then that's where your cops are going to go you're going to target those communities for heavy enforcement to bring down the crime in giuliani's circumstance he dropped violent crime by 65 to 70 percent and murder 70 to 75 percent and in some of those black communities almost 80 percent murder dropped almost 80 percent saving thousands of black lives are you going to have problems between aggressive policing and the black community in that case yes you are if your cops do something wrong if they violate the law if they violate somebody's civil rights then deal with it but don't chastise the entire police community for having problems in the black community if the black community is like you know like you have chicago right now you have in baltimore you have in st louis you have in milwaukee somebody has to do something about the crime because you know and i hear people constantly saying there's poverty that's the problem the problem is socioeconomic the problem is that listen those problems ain't never going away they're never going to get fixed i don't care how much money you put there it's not going to work because nobody's going to build businesses nobody's going to create jobs nobody's going to move there nobody's going to build apartments or houses if you don't make it so they can live safely. Yeah. It's just not going to happen. I, I, so I'm, you're going to have those problems. I, I'm not linking, uh, and I did not say all police. I've never said that. Uh, no, I no, very closely I with the police. I, I I'm I linking your comment, though, about how the government came after you and saying, well, gee, I think we've heard this kind of conversation many times, and you were in the role of a police chief, so there must be some kind of dichotomy in your mind about, well, they came after me and that was bad. We used resources and went after, at times, a community that has said there's challenges, but that's okay. I, I, I just can't reconcile. I mean, that's a hard thing to reconcile uh, to hear you say that, to be blunt. Mr. Kirk, uh, Jennifer Vollen from the uh, John Howard Association also has a question for you. Jennifer? So- I think what we're talking about here is punishment that's proportionate to the crime, punishment that fits the crime. And it sounds as if what you're saying about your own case is that being stripped of a position and all of the attendant circumstances that flowed from your having been convicted for the tax evasion was enough because you held a position of power and authority and losing that had a really big impact on you. And I'm wondering, do you see that in larger contexts? I mean, I think we have a problem with proportionate sentencing at proportionate punishment in the in the form of our entire sentencing paradigm and it's unclear to me if you see it in just your context or whether you see it as a broader problem okay first of all guys it it, i'm i'm not talking about in context of my position i was retired i was five years retired had nothing to do with my position now put that aside the whole thing on punishment fits the crime in my opinion across the board I don't care if it's a 
if it's a white-collar conviction or it's a drug conviction. I don't care. Either one, the whole punishment fits the crime thing is a farce unless you're put in prison for rape, murder, or some major violent crime where you're going to be there for life. Okay, minus that, once you're convicted of a felony in this country, you are punished until the day you die. I don't care how much time you spend in prison. So the whole punishment fits the crime thing is sort of a joke to me. Mr. Carrick, we have to pause. Can Can you stick with this for one more segment? Yes, sir. Okay, back shortly from Chicago and New York. Everyone loves vacationing in Florida. So why not experience it as it was meant to be? Where turquoise gulf waters meet tranquil island beaches. Feel the powder-soft sand between your toes. Revel in a glorious island sunset. Shop the boutiques of a seaside village. Ride horseback along tranquil waters. This is Bradenton Anna Maria Island Longboat Key. Real, authentic Florida, where you can discover an intimate downtown and sit cappuccino at a sidewalk cafe. Catch fresh fish for dinner. Even tour a working winery. Just minutes from all the rest Florida has to offer. Bradenton, Anna Maria Island, Longboat Key. Plan your visit online at BradentonGulfIslands.com. That's BradentonGulfIslands.com. Bruce Dumont back in Chicago. Thanks very much for joining us. Bernard Carrick is with us. Uh, he is the former commissioner of New York City. He is author of a new book called The Grave Above the Grave, and that is a novel based on uh, uh, a 9-11 experience, which uh, uh, Commissioner Carrick was very much involved with uh, during a, a very tragic time in the history of the United States. He's author, also author of other books, most notably one we're talking about this evening, From Jailer to Jailed, uh, My Journey from Correction and Police Commissioner uh, to an Inmate Number. And again, he spent three years uh, in in prison. Uh, Bernard, one question to you is when you were uh, incarcerated, uh, being a police commissioner, uh, you you were put in solitary confinement. Uh, How long did that last? A total of about three months. And did you acknowledge that that was for your personal safety or did you think it was punitive? No, I know it was punitive, they told me, um, and I didn't acknowledge it was for my own personal safety because I ran Rikers Island for six years. I know there's segregation abilities within a jail and prison system that they can put people um, where they don't deprive you of basic rights like they do in, in uh, solitary confinement. There is a purpose for solitary confinement. There's a need for solitary confinement, and that is if you're a threat to the institution or staff, if you are an escape risk, um, if you're violence-prone, um, there's a need for solitary, for that kind of segregation. However, when you take somebody you know, like Paul Manafort, sticking him in solitary confinement, I actually wrote a piece on this. I know why they do it. They do it to break you down. They do it to make you give up. They do it for a number of different reasons. But the bottom line is there's a need for it, 
and it should be used when necessary, when, when, it's, uh, when, it, when there's that need. But otherwise, there's alternatives to, to uh, solitary confinement, administrative seg, and a bunch of other things they could do um, for your own protection, for protective custody. And uh, in the federal system especially, they completely overabuse uh, solitary. In your case, did you feel that you were being pressured to give up someone higher than you, whether it was Rudy Giuliani or someone else? Um, it, well, it was all a part of my investigation. Forty percent of all the questions that the U.S. attorneys asked all the witnesses didn't have anything to do with my nanny. It had to do with Rudy Giuliani. How often did he speak to the White House? What's his relationship with Karl Rove? You know, who pays for his food when he's on a campaign trip for the president? Really? That has nothing to do with my nanny. Has nothing to do with my nanny. Has nothing to do with my apartment renovations. Has nothing to do with me. Why would you be asking these people all these questions? You know, this... The but whole wasn't, didn't, the, didn't this happen during... The Bush administration? Yes. This was the Justice Department headed by, was it Alberto Gonzalez? I mean, who was the head of the Justice Department when when you're getting this pressure to to turn uh, turn up evidence against one of the leading Republicans in the country? It was was Gonzalez. No, it wasn't Gonzalez at the time. It was, uh, let me see. Yeah, it was Gonzalez at the time. It was Ashcroft before him, Gonzalez at the time, and Preparhara after, uh, after I pled guilty. But here, here's the thing: in the Justice Department, I don't care who the top guy is; it's the prosecutors and the bureau chiefs who are career prosecutors and bureau chiefs. Um, they're there through different administrations. They're the guys that do this, and the guys at the top will not, will not interfere, no matter how reckless they are rogue they are on a national scale on a national scale less than two percent of the american federal prosecutors that get caught engaged in misconduct prosecutorial misconduct ethical violations and other things less than two percent are held accountable you know it's it's just uh some of the things they do is wrong and, and i'm not saying all prosecutors because i've worked with some of the best in the world on cartel drug cases, and on the 9-11 stuff in the aftermath of the attack on the city. I know some phenomenal, some not the best prosecutors in the world, but there are prosecutors out there that selectively and politically target people for their own personal gain. On one, uh, on one of the Sunday shows today, there was one guest who made the comment that within the federal prosecutory field, that Robert Mueller is known as a killer, an absolute no-nonsense guy. Would you agree with that but, assessment? In, no, I don't really agree with that. I mean, I know him. You know, I knew him as FBI director. He was actually the FBI director in, uh, you know, during 9-11. Um, but I, I don't see him that way. Personally, I don't think he was a great FBI director. I think the best by far in my lifetime has been Louis Free. Um, you know, so I, I don't know. I think that's, I don't know. I can't okay. say. Jason Spires has a question for you. He, uh, in our first hour, was explaining uh, his 15 years in prison. He was released last year and uh, is going to start at Stanford University uh, next week. But he's got a question for you. Uh, 
Thank you. As I listened to you talk, I found a lot of comparisons in my head between you and me, and I have an interesting question for you, and then I'd like to react to your answer. Uh, first off, if all you did was not pay income taxes or payroll on a nanny, I don't think three years in prison is a accurate sentence for that. However, I also think to myself, like, 15 years in prison wasn't applicable for selling pot. However, at the time when I was selling pot, I knew that it was illegal. I knew that I was committing a crime, and I was willfully doing it anyways because I wanted to make money. Just like you knew what you were doing was wrong, but you were willfully doing it anyways because it made your life more convenient. So my question is, is what would have been an applicable sentence for what you did, being the fact that it is illegal? If it wasn't illegal, it would be a whole different conversation. And uh, what did you do while you were incarcerated that actually helped you become a better person? And then I would like to close that out. Go ahead, Bernard. Uh, There's two things. You guys keep saying three years. It wasn't three. It was four. I served inside three years and 11 days. um, And that was, you know, my good time and and halfway house time, all that stuff uh, reduced it to three years, 11 days. It was a four year sentence. So so that's number one. Uh, Number two, um, what should my sentence have been? Um, I should have just like. 99.9% 99.9% of the people that get tied up in these, in these, um, you know, nanny, you know, uh, uh, hiring an, an illegal alien uh, case, um, they pay their payroll tax. Listen, you have, though, here's a good example. Kimblewood is one of the, um, judges in the Southern District of New York. She actually has Michael Cohen case. She was nominated for Attorney General yes. under Bill Clinton, and she had a nanny. And when she had to withdraw, like I did, she withdrew her name um, from becoming the Attorney General. She paid her back taxes. And she did whatever she did, and she moved on, and she's still, today, a federal judge. Okay. So the okay. way I... The, the way I'd react... What did you learn? He wants to ask about what you learned. I, I think most importantly what I learned is the flaws and failures in the criminal justice system. And I'm in a position, I think... No, I don't think. I'm, I'm definitely in a position to be a, a, an active voice on the topic because of my background, my experience in... in the experience is more than unique. I ran both of the largest criminal justice systems in the country, the NYPD and Rikers. I had 133,000 inmate admissions per year. I ran them both, and I also was on the inside. No one in the history of the country has ever been in that position. So I got to see things, one, that I didn't know about, um, and when you asked earlier, how long did it take? It took me about three weeks, three weeks inside to get a look around, hear stories and learn. We definitely have a major problem. Okay. Follow up um, question. Uh, well, my follow, question. my follow up commentary to that is what I'm basically hearing is you have no qualms with the law that it is. You have qualms that you got political retribution. See, the, the analogy that I'm making is 
I'm against the drug war, and I do the speaking that I do because I want to stop anybody, even if they got a sentence that wasn't severe as me, from going down a path that turns them into a thug. Uh, I commend everything that you're doing, but from what I'm hearing is you're saying you're just fine with the way the law it is. You're just upset with how you were personally treated in your own situation. The next thing I would say to that is okay, it kind on. of scared. Let respond. Let's let him respond. Okay. Go ahead. Hold on. But I'm not fine with the way the law is. I'm not fine with the way the law is at all. If the law wasn't the way it is, we wouldn't have the problems we have. The laws have to be changed. I, in the last five years, the first three years I got out, I, I spent I, 60 trips going back and forth to Washington trying to get laws changed. I, I definitely have a problem with the laws. And I, and I commend you for that, but the, the, the key that I'm trying to make is what scares me is I was deemed a heinous offender for cannabis, and when I'm talking to law enforcement officials, they don't realize that this is the law. And what scares me is that you were a top law enforcement official, and you actually had to go to prison to realize what was wrong with the system. What scares me is the disconnect, but I think all the work and everything you're doing is great. I'm not knocking that in any which fashion. And on that time, we've got to say thank you very much for uh, sharing your uh, evening with us, uh, Commissioner. Again, the, the latest book is The Grave Above the Grave. It's a great book. And uh, it's out now. And, Commissioner, we hope to have you on the program again in the future. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, guys. Are you headed to Los Angeles looking for the ideal place for you and your family to relax and enjoy yourselves? A place that combines a four-diamond hotel experience with a convenient location? It's the Hilton Los Angeles Universal City. Just steps away from Universal Studios Hollywood, CityWalk, and NBC Studios. Just a short ride to the Hollywood Walk of Fame, TCL Chinese Theater, Warner Brothers, and other popular attractions. Enjoy spacious rooms offering breathtaking views and a world-class Las Vegas-style seafood and prime rib buffet every weekend and holidays. Share family fun and enjoy the oasis of the palm tree-lined pool and whirlpool. Relax in your own private poolside cabana with a cocktail or snack at your fingertips. Book your reservation today at HiltonUniversal.com or call 1-800-774-1500. The Hilton Los Angeles Universal City at HiltonUniversal.com. They let you be the star in Hollywood. First, come on back in Chicago. Uh, Jack... uh, you had some concerns about Mr. Carrick. Yeah, just uh, so first of all, again, uh, as a case for criminal justice reform, uh, you know, not a good example, right, because the gentleman's got tons of resources uh, to do it. Right. Um, I'll, I'll get to what I said in just one sec. I want to make Although sure. Although we that, owe us $4.6 million. Yeah, okay. Well, it's, you know, the, and this gentleman yeah. owes two hundred what $68,000. I think the real issues in criminal justice reform, and then I'll, I'll get to that, uh, is really um, how is it that we're going to deal with it in a way that the people in the street want, which is they want to be safe. And what that means ultimately is that we have a mechanism by which we can sort people who the police encounter, then after that the jails encounter, then the courts encounter, and the prisons encounter, safely keep people in community who can best be treated in community through use of local treatment and resources, and the very few who we know by research actually need to be incarcerated. That's the big criminal justice picture. And to have that conversation, we have to talk about lots of things. Um, what I'm hearing just you know, generally is that when I hear stories of people who are discounting their actions in criminal conduct, 
uh, they're discounting uh, that uh, or saying that someone's coming after them. You know, there are elements of that that sound just like any other story that says, well, maybe there's something more here going on. Uh, and there's a, a field for it called the field of criminal thinking, right, which is what's uh, mine is mine, what's yours is mine, and the whole world's against me. So I hear a little bit of that, you know, just sitting here mm-hmm. coming through like, well, maybe right, so, maybe not, but you were a police chief, you were um, the head of a jail. Did you not see any of the racial disparity going on? Did you not see any of these same challenges in the yeah. thousands upon thousands upon thousands of cases you dealt with? Did you not have yeah. mothers and victim, crime victims who I care deeply about as a crime reduction expert come to you and say something's not working? What happened? Then all of a sudden it happens to you, and now the world looks really different. You know? I'm glad he's but out that, there, as Jason said. But, that's, but, but, that's, but that yeah. happens a lot, right? In other words, you don't really know how bad it is until you have an experience. I, I, with I, it. I get that. I just think that the advocacy should be around reforming the criminal justice system for reducing crime think, by getting people into treatment, into the services they need, and putting them where they be. Some people need to be in jail, some in prison. We know that many can be handled where services exist in a community setting, and they get better outcomes, which is the word Jennifer was using early right. on. That's the criminal so. justice reform picture, not whether or not someone like you know Bernard gets uh, caught up in whatever he got caught up in. That's not the justice reform right. argument. I, I think that's right. I mean, I think we have to look at it from a, a variety of different perspectives. And first, we need to think about you know what are people doing to land themselves in prison, right? And are the sentences they're getting reasonable? Do we need it to keep us safe? Do we need it? for the larger public good, and then we need to think about how many resources are we directing in that way, and is that the best use of those resources? And I think we need to think about all of that. I mean, it comes down to sentencing. I mean, people violate the law all the time, and if we don't do anything, I understand we run the risk of condoning it, and we don't want to do that. On the other hand, we need to think about what did that violation actually do to us as a society, and how much do we want to pay to punish that person? And it, do we really want to punish them, or do we think that maybe we can help this person or change their thinking or give them a skill set that they didn't have before so that they are in a different position moving forward? But and also, I think what's happening is that uh, a, a larger number of people – are thinking of they're looking at the economic impact of yeah. absolutely not only the devastation of, of loss of money, uh, but also uh, lives. I mean, obviously, yes. lives are being destroyed, and I yes. think that the unique situation, which which I think we really had, it was coming to to a head uh, before the election, was that you had organizations right of center and left of center, uh, right on crime out of Austin, Texas. Yep. We yep. do a lot of exactly. shows with them, yeah. groups like that. I mean, you had the Koch brothers and you had the, the ACLU basically on the same side yep. in many of these issues. I mean, it was really moving towards some congressional resolution right. until the election came along and then everybody went to their, their sides. Right. But I think, you know, fr- from a political standpoint... I think the the big difference here is, and I, I think you know it, it made it uh, one the, the first step act made it through the uh, the House, and they got to figure out how they're going to get it through the Senate. Jared Kushner allegedly wants to get it through the Senate, you know, before the midterms. I don't know if that's going to happen. But the unique thing here is that the leader of the free world, the President of the United States, whether you love him or hate him, the guy that's blowing in his ear right now, who's talking in his ear, 
is Jared Kushner, who understands these issues. Maybe he understands these issues for the wrong reason, just like Bernie Kerrigan. His father went to prison, but whatever it is, this guy, this guy has the president's ear. Yes. So if we're going to get some change, this should be a time when that happens. That's right. There should be should some be. movement. And actually, I will say, too, um, um, that on the issue of serious mental illness and the criminal justice system, there is a continuing ongoing movement in the United States, including at the federal level for that, on the issue of uh, people who are using opioids um, yes. and overdosing. There is a continuing and a, an ever-growing effort, the largest numbers we've ever seen. So there are fronts on which there's bipartisan agreement that we should be acting in the criminal justice system by not incarcerating people. Those are just two of them uh, right. that are on and active, and yeah. everybody should be out there knowing we're going to get good outcomes from that because that's what the research right. says. And people and politicians have got to understand that if you look at the statistics, they're, they're devastating statistics, but if you look at whether our system is working or not, it's not working. Yeah. That's right. Everybody if, if, should right. acknowledge from the get-go, whether you're a Republican, right. Democrat, this system is not working. And what we're hearing tonight is one guy who sort of made it through the system. Yep. And by the way, before we run our time, Jason, would you please give us uh, an email address? If people want to reach you, how do they do that? Uh my name is Jason Spires. It's spelled S-P-Y-R-E-S. And my email address is jasonspires at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook and send me something on Messenger and I'll reply. All right. And you start next week at Stanford University. And new student orientation starts on the 20th. Give us an update. We want to see this is the next chapter. Yes. Not totally successfully. you got to get through four years of Stanford. That's Ooh. a challenge. Our thanks this evening to uh, also our other guests, Jack Charlier and Jennifer Volland-Katz. Thank you very much. Uh, I want to thank also Dan Dorfman and Sam Greenberg and Fritz Goldman for their assistance in the production of this program. Until next week, this is Bruce Dumont. Good night from Chicago. If you look hard enough, go off the beaten track far enough, you'll find an America teeming with the unusual, the odd, the downright strange. I'm Will Klinger, and I'm your guide on a package tour we like to call Wild Travels. Join us on our weekly road trip to see America's most offbeat and unusual attractions. Wild Travels, available on your local PBS station. Or it darn well should be. Live from Chicago, it's Saturday Night Live. The experience. For the first time ever, get an inside look at the making of SNL. Critics nationwide are raving over 500 artifacts direct from the show. Be a part of Wayne's work, Weekend Update, and so much more. Experience all it takes to put the show together. Now at the Museum of Broadcast Communications at 360 North State Street in Chicago. For tickets, visit museum.tv. Everyone loves vacationing in Florida, so why not experience it as it was meant to be? Where turquoise gulf waters meet tranquil island beaches. Feel the powder-soft sand between your toes. Revel in a glorious island sunset. Shop the boutiques of a seaside village. Ride horseback along tranquil waters. 
This is Bradenton, Anna Maria Island, Longboat Key. Real, authentic Florida, where you can discover an intimate downtown and sip cappuccino at a sidewalk cafe. Catch fresh fish for dinner. Even tour a working winery. Just minutes from all the rest Florida has to offer. Bradenton, Anna Maria Island, Longboat Key. Plan your visit online at BradentonGulfIslands.com. That's BradentonGulfIslands.com. Are you headed to Los Angeles looking for the ideal place for you and your family to relax and enjoy yourselves? A place that combines a four-diamond hotel experience with a convenient location? It's the Hilton Los Angeles Universal City. Just steps away from Universal Studios Hollywood, CityWalk, and NBC Studios. Just a short ride to the Hollywood Walk of Fame, TCL Chinese Theater, Warner Brothers, and other popular attractions. Enjoy spacious rooms offering breathtaking views and a world-class Las Vegas-style seafood and prime rib buffet every weekend and holidays. Share family fun and enjoy the oasis of the palm tree-lined pool and whirlpool. Relax in your own private poolside cabana with a cocktail or snack at your fingertips. Book your reservation today at HiltonUniversal.com or call 1-800-774-1500. The Hilton Los Angeles Universal City at HiltonUniversal.com. They let you be the star in Hollywood. <laughs> 